Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Catch Up After College podcast, season two. Today, we have another amazing guest. I know I say that all the time, but all our guests are amazing. His name is Toby Castle, and he is just dropping knowledge today. Uh, he tells us how to tackle racism and pretty much just sharing his experience as uh, being a white man, a white Australian man, and not growing up around too much diversity, but it came in later in life, uh, and just how he has changed as a person and realized how racism was such a big problem here, not just in the U.S., but all over the globe. So here now today, how he learns to tackle racism daily and come in arm in arm with people of color to do that as well. This is going to be a good one, guys. Make sure to tune in. Let's go. After College podcast. We're catching up after college on the lessons of life lived by leaders. We're a safe space grounded in grace and our aim's always to aid. We may be post-graduation, but we're never post-education. I'm Isaiah Brown, your host, and thank you for tuning in today. Today, we have the one and only Toby Castle here with us. What's happening? Hey, man. Good to be here. Uh, thanks for having us and uh, excited for our conversation. Yeah. I'm loving the background. It's very eventful. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, bro. Yeah, cool. All right. So I may have this completely wrong, but are you a fan of the Chelsea Football Club? I am a big fan of Chelsea Football Club. It's a bit of a sad day today. We played Liverpool, uh, lost 5-3. It was a little bit concerning. But uh, um, we have one more game. If we win... On the weekend against Wolverhampton, then we'll uh, be in Champions League football next year. So you can always hope, right? Always hope. Yeah, for sure. I hear they're pretty good, though. That's a good team to go with. Like they Chelsea. are good. Um, they um, they won Europe back in 2012 and uh, have been pretty successful over the last uh, 10 to 15 years. So I've been a fan now for... I don't know, coming up on almost 30 years. Dang. Okay. That's yeah. good because we're about to do some mm-hmm. trivia. But uh, good. you good. mind explaining it to the Americans? Uh, when they hear Chelsea Football Club, they probably don't know what that is. Sure. Chelsea Football Club's a team in West London um, in the English Premier League. They started in 1905. Uh, I think they've won uh, seven premierships. Uh, if you include the first division, their first one was back in 1950. And probably the best player of all time was Frank Lampard. Oh, man. Dude, you already answered two of my questions. Oh, my God. Did I really? Okay. <laughs> man. Okay. Well, we're still going to do it. We're going to act like that. All right. Come on. All right. <laughs> all right. So who's the current head coach? Current head coach is Frank Lampard. 
Yep, that guy. Yep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what are two North London clubs that have a long-standing rivalry with Chelsea? Uh, uh, Tottenham and Arsenal. Yes, sir. Name the one American mm-hmm. on the team. Christian Pulisic. Oh, this is too easy. And I was going to say, what year was the club founded? Last question. <laughs> 19, 1905. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Cool, man. I guess I should have made that way harder for you, but now Absolutely. I know in the future. <laughs> Next time when you're on. Absolutely. Yeah, man. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll just jump right into it. You mind telling us where you're from and can you describe what your life was like before college? Sure, man. I grew up in on Sydney's northern beaches uh, in a little beach town called Collaroy. I uh, lived there till I, I was about 20 or 21 and then moved to Manly. Um, lived in Manly for a couple of years and then um, I uh, my college experience was a little bit different. Um, began... Um, in the US at the University of Washington then, but that was only like a, a very short spell, then went to Sydney University for four years, did a Bachelor of Education. Um, then uh, began teaching and uh, coaching high school basketball. I ran a high school basketball program for about seven years uh, while I was working full time, um, kind of dabbled um a little bit so i applied to the london school of economics in 2008 uh was accepted but didn't have the money to go uh it was about um thirty thousand australian dollars for the year to go and i just didn't didn't have the coin so uh couldn't do it so i then uh did a year part-time at the university of new south wales doing a master's of community, community development but um, dropped out of that because uh, life just got too hectic with coaching sport and um, and things like that. And then uh, end of 2012, start 2013, I started uh, doing a Master's of Global Leadership at Fuller Seminary, uh, which I graduated, did another degree there, and now I'm doing um, a doctorate there in theology and ethics. Dang, how many colleges was that? That I attended or that I graduated from? Uh, I guess both. Or well, I think I, one, two, three, four, five. So I think it's like seven programs that I applied for uh, that I graduated Sydney and three that I've graduated from. And I'm halfway through a doctorate at the moment. So, Dang. Um, so at, once I finish this, which will be in about, I don't know, maybe two and a half to three years, um, being international, I got to pay up front. I can't do any like student loans or or um, anything like that that you Americans are able to do. Um, so uh, once I've graduated there, um, that would be my fourth degree. Um, but oh, I'm leaving out one. I'm currently uh, in an executive program at Harvard, um, which I have two classes left for I'm finished there. Wow. Do you feel like you're winding down? Like uh, this is your last college phase of your life? Absolutely not. Um, I think when I got the conviction um, after I did my bachelor's degree to 
actually understand what the posture and practice of a lifelong long learner was. Um, that um, I realized that education can take many forms. It doesn't need to be uh, institutional, but I think what institutional and organizational education does do is it creates accountability. And um, accountability uh, really helps with um, what I call learning integrity, which is one's ability to uh, remain kind of true to a specific goal or purpose around an educational framework or philosophy. So I've, um, um, one of my goals is like, as I continue to learn things theoretically that I am able to embody them practically. So, yeah. yeah. Can you tell us what your life looks like right now? Like, are you working full time while in college? So I am working full time. It's really funny. Um, and uh, you're probably aware of this with Kelly is that, um, Kelly and I got married, uh, just, uh, a couple of days into the, into the COVID pandemic. Um, so we've been married for four months now, which is great. Um, but being on a green card track, um, um, even though I'm working, I can't get paid. So I guess you would say that I'm a perpetual volunteer for, for the organization that I was going to be employed by anyway. Um, I was, if COVID wasn't around, I was meant to start at the beginning of April on, um, uh, on a work visa but I couldn't go back to Australia to get that paperwork done. So um, I'm working full time and uh, waiting for my permission to work to come through so I can earn some money. So I'm, so in short, I am working full time, but studying part time. So doing a lot of pre-reading at the moment for my next class, uh, which will be the theology of Martin Luther King. Then I'm doing one on, uh, uh, Black Liberation Theology and James Cohn. And then wow. I'll have two more, two more classes and then I'm done. Man, that's pretty crazy. Um, yeah, it's gotta be hectic, but learning all this stuff in college, looking back, is there anything you wish you had learned in high school or what do you call it in Australia? Uh, we call it high school. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. thought you called it like secondary or something or... Oh yeah, so like we we kind of break out into primary, secondary, and tertiary. So yeah. primary school is is elementary school. Um, high school for us starts in the seventh grade and goes through to the twelfth grade, uh, and then college or university is our tertiary stuff. But if there's something that I would have learnt in high school, um, I didn't go to a very diverse school. Uh, my school was fairly white. The part of the country that I'm that I'm originally from was when I went through back in the uh, 90s and early 2000s was uh, probably the widest vestige in the country. Uh, so I I wish my learning experience was more ethnically and racially diverse. That didn't happen until I went to university and was exposed to um, I guess narratives and. Uh, existential perspectives uh, and pedagogical practices that uh, where white wasn't seen as normal. So uh, um, that's probably what I wish I learned more. Yeah, 
Um, so what you're currently studying, how has it shifted like the perspectives that you have on life? Sure. So um, I first went to Ferguson in 2014 after the death of Michael Brown. And I would say that that experience on the ground there, as well as others in cities like Oakland and Baltimore, really shifted my understanding of who I was and uh, what I was doing and who I was becoming. Um, I think it um, really shifted in me kind of this key question, uh, which um, I would say a friend and mentor of mine, Ben McBride, would say is that the uh, if if our first question is what we're doing or what are we doing, it's the wrong first question to ask. The right first question needs to be who are we becoming? And I realised during those moments um, as, I, as I learnt not only theoretically but existentially um, the realities of uh, race and violence here in the US uh, that I needed, that it uh, kind of, it was the calling of mine and it became an imperative posture uh, that as I learn, I use those skills to contend with and for those who can't contend for themselves. So uh, not, not as a means of trying to um, build a following, not as a means of trying to make as much money as I can, not as a means of simply trying to get educated, but using my education, understanding the complexities of the world that we live in to um, make it as accessible for everyone else. Um, so really be um, a conduit of dismantling um, cultural complexity. So, yeah. Yeah. Was there a wake up moment for you? If I could bring up an example. So there, have you heard the movie Fruitvale Station or you know what it's about? I sure have. Michael B. Jordan. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> so me and a friend, uh, it was a white friend, we're watching it in, uh, when we're roommates in Australia. And when he gets killed at the end of the movie, representing Oscar Grant, that's who he is mm -hmm. playing. Um, yep. He was like, no, that could never happen. Why would mm -hmm. a police officer just shoot a unarmed guy like that? That can't happen. I was like, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it, it does happen. Like, was there mm -hmm. a wake up moment? sort of like that for you? Absolutely. I think um, uh, I probably went on, on, I guess, what we could call um, a sojourn uh, from that kind of late 2014 period through to kind of the end of 2016, realising that what I thought during my first real exposure, like I'd heard of uh, the murder of Oscar, of Oscar Grant, um, in Oakland, uh, but I just thought it was the exception to the rule. I didn't understand that uh, it was a that uh, it was almost like a violent cultural norm uh, that with uh, that with the biases and the training that law enforcement uh, practice uh, and the legal protection that they have as well that it was um, more of an occurrence than I thought it was. Uh, so I guess um, I always say that it was on the streets of Ferguson that that I found Jesus or Jesus found me and it really pivoted and changed everything, not only about my faith, but 
um, about my posture and my practice. Um, that um, no matter where I am, that um, that I'm continuing to um, use uh, the things that I've been equipped with and the pursuit and practice of education uh, to engage in leveling the playing field for people that the system uh, overtly discriminates against. Yeah. So how do you, you personally tackle racism and injustice of that sort? Um, so when you look at culture, um, I think I would argue anthropologically that culture is the intersection of language, practice and people. And I think the easiest thing that we can change is our language. So um, I think most superficially when, when we talk about um, things that we kind of observe or encounter, um, when people begin to use uh, certain um, items of language that either make fun of other people's skin tone, make fun of other people's cultural stereotypes, make fun of, you know, and, and like it becomes the butt or the cause of jokes, I think that's probably the easiest way to curb racism. Um, I think language also builds culture and systems. So if we're able to change the way people use their words, we're able to change the way uh, anything is encountered. And then, um, you need to change people's practices. So um, with the organisations that I now work for, will work for because I don't get paid yet, um, I only work for black institutions. Um, I don't work. Um, my previous job in Australia, I worked for uh, an elite white boys' school but really found that difficult because uh, it was a 120, 130-year-old institution had a lot of strong uh, cultural practices uh, that were very difficult to change. Um, so uh, if I couldn't change it, I had to change me. And so I realized that I couldn't work, work for that institution again. Um, and that's okay, like they do a lot of good things, but I realized that, um, you know, life's too short to work for an organization or be a part of the community that, that doesn't, um, validate you and so um, and so you got to go where the energy is and so uh, in moving to work for black institutions like in uh, in my current role um, I'm, I'm the only white guy in leadership um, everyone else is a man or woman of colour uh, actually in both institutions so um, I think um, people can say a lot of things, people can do a lot of things, but they really need to uh, begin to embody it consistently so people can tell that uh, it's not just a fad, it's not like the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge, um, but it is something that uh, is deeply embedded in uh, what I am and um, what I do. Yeah. Man, um, I'm sure you've heard of the white savior complex, that whole thing. Mm -hmm. But um, yep. it's pretty crazy when like you just see it in movies and all that kind of sort. And, but I love what you said you're doing. You're working with like 
black institutions and all that. How do you find that balance of always uh, coming arm in arm with people of color and not uh, being the white savior? Sure. Um, I find it comes about in understanding my role and understanding uh, my gifts, talents and abilities. Um, I know that I'm good at writing policy. I know that I'm good at writing. Um, and so I actually find my role in these institutions actually doing a lot of the background work. So whether it's ghostwriting or whether it's writing vision and mission statements, um, is that I, uh, even though I may write down the words and type the keys, everything is a collaboration. So I want to ensure that there's not a white voice behind what's being said, but people can tell that it's a voice of color because I'm working for black institutions. Um, I think also, um, and I know this is about education, but my default is that I go theological. I think when we understand uh, kind of hand in hand Genesis 4 with um, Cain and Abel, um, and when we understand, um, I think it's Genesis 16 with Hagar's interaction with God, um, and thirdly, the parable of the Samaritan, I want to, and I don't want to say good Samaritan because it's not actually about what he did. It's about the type of community the Samaritan was building and understanding the sociological understanding of who the Samaritan was. That I've seen a lot of people uh, comment recently that we need to be Samaritans. Reality is being a, a white educated male is that uh, culturally I, I can't be but I can still contribute to what the Good Samaritan was, was trying to do. Um, and so I think from Genesis 4 to circle back, uh, when it's asked, am I my brother's keeper? Uh, the kind of undertone of that is, I only succeed when we succeed. Is that this hyper-individualism that exists, uh, not only in the US, but in Western civil society, um, affirms this idea of the self-made individual, which simply doesn't exist. Like we, we are made for community. We are made to do life together and we're made to succeed together. Uh, Hagar, um, in, with her interaction with God, it's actually the first time that anyone in the Bible names God. And when you understand the syntax of the Hebrew, the story actually isn't about a it isn't about Abram and Sarah, and you know who's having a baby. The story is about Hagar. She's been marginalised by Sarah, and she's the she's the object of the narrative. God's God's concern is purely and only for her, and she's the marginalised one in the story. I think we miss that in in our understanding and exegesis of, uh, of the story. And then thirdly, um, I want to lift up this uh, kind of explicitly. Um, Reggie Williams, who's the Associate Professor of Ethics at McCormick Theological Seminary in Chicago, uh, talks about uh, this idea of uh, the lawyer who brings up the story to Jesus in regards to uh, 
um, you know, who is my neighbor? And Jesus goes on to talk about the Levite, the priest, and the Samaritan. Um, that question, who is my neighbor, uh, he's actually not asking Jesus um, uh, who he can concern himself with. The question is actually fundamentally evil because the question is asking who can I exclude? Who is it okay for me to exclude? And when Jesus goes, well, let me tell you the story, uh, people are expecting him to say a, he, um, a priest, a Levite, and, and a Hebrew walk into a bar. But actually he twists it and he goes, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. And people are like, why are you talking about those people? Samaritans were half caste. They weren't part of civil society. And they were meant to exist on, on the margins, which is why in John 4, uh, we hear about the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. When did she come and get water? It wasn't in the early morning or late in the day. It was in the heat of the day. Why? Because it was the worst time to do it and everyone else was at home resting. So... Um, I know that there's a perception that of the white savior complex, um, but um, I try and keep a whole, I try and keep myself accountable by giving people permission that I trust to tell me if, uh, if I'm overstepping the line or actually if I need to speak up more often. Wow. That's great stuff. So what's the most practical way you put to use all that you've studied so far? Um, I'd probably say, um, you know, I'm a great believer that education is the primary tool for social upward mobility. So in my current role as um, managing director, as managing director of a boys school based out of Baltimore. Um, we're, we're a boys school, it's only been around five years, uh, a boys school for boys of color. 98% of our over 500 boys uh, are African-American. Uh, 2% are Hispanic and there's one white boy. Uh, and, and like, so this is the most practical way that in the things that I'm doing and the opportunities that I'm trying to build and the partnerships and the research. Uh, this is probably the, the best way that I'm putting it into practice. Um, all the things that I've learned and the things that I've been formed in um, since like 2013 or 2014. Yeah. And what would you say has been the biggest roadblock or hurdle you've had to face since graduating college? We'll say your first college. Um, I'd say uh, people's perception of of, of youth. Um, um, I know when people are younger, they're ambitious and they have um, probably over ambitious perceptions of themselves. Um, and I'm not sure if you're aware of the narrative of Icarus in Greek mythology. So like, he, you know, his father um, gave him wings and he flew too close to the sun and, set, and so his wings burnt and he fell down. People kind of tend to use that narrative as a way of talking about uh, how, you know, don't be too ambitious, don't put 
you know, too many things before yourself. And uh, a lot of people then actually buy into that. And a lot of older people then say, uh, you know, uh, take your time um, and don't, um, don't kind of overstep the mark and be patient and train. Um, I think that dualism becomes our own roadblock. I think what we need to try and navigate is we need to be ambitious and have dreams as well as um, learn specifically under people. I think the biggest roadblock I had was that very early on, I didn't understand the power of a mentor. Um, and when I began to understand um, the power of um, having mentors in my life, like, you know, I, I've, uh, I've six at the moment um, and they all have their like specific role and they all have their nuances in which they're teaching and forming me. I think when we, un I think the biggest roadblock I had was not uh, having a person who I gave permission to speak into my life, but was listening to all these different voices that were attempting to talk into my life that um, I didn't probably have the wisdom or discernment to understand who I should listen to. So what do you look for in a mentor for you personally? Personally, for me, um, I don't look for concrete outcomes. I look for soft skills or, or I tend to call them like um, flavors. So I, so I look for uh, certain things that I want replicated in myself. Um, I think that's uh, why it's more than okay to have um, one mentor because one mentor doesn't and also should never embody everything that we want to become. Uh, that's a little bit uh, godlike and that's a little bit idolatrous. Um, and so um, understanding, I guess, myself, there are then things that I want uh, to work on so I can become a better version of Toby. Um, one case in point is that um, I have a very good friend. He's probably 20, maybe 21 years older than me. He lives actually down the coast here in California. His name's Bill Cody. And Bill, um, I've never been around a person who uses language um, and insight to affirm an individual. And he's not afraid to kind of almost in the most awkward of times actually stop everything. And when he recognizes something in an individual, he, you know, uh, it is not uncommon for him to go, whoa, 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 we just need to take a moment now to affirm you because what I've seen in you, you need to continue to fan into flame as an example. And so uh, he has this ability to see things in other people that they don't see in themselves. And I know that I want that in me. And that's why I give him permission to like call me out, to affirm me, to uh, speak truth in life. So, yeah. yeah. And while studying your, I guess, different majors, in what ways did it challenge mm -hmm. your faith and vice versa? Um, probably about age of 19 or 20, I probably deconstructed my, uh, my entire faith where I, where I guess I 
um, deconstructed everything except the sovereignty of God because I because I didn't feel that um, that we can kind of touch or deconstruct what we what we merely don't understand. Um, and so what I found was that I mistakenly uh, believed without um, discernment or uh, critique everything that either my pastor said or that uh, certain people said that I had put up on the pedestal. Um, I had conflated that as what God is saying. Um, and so I had to actually go through this process of unlearning which is unlearning this kind of uh, these uh, uh, kind of ingrained perceptions and postures, which I thought were normal. Uh, things like misogyny, uh, things like um, racial bias, where white was normal and white was right. Uh, things like um, a woman's role in in like the church, a woman's role in leadership, or a woman's role in teaching. Um, I grew up in a context where women rarely, if ever, taught, and that was wrong. Um, I grew up in a context where, um, I guess, originally you could say that it was uh, cessationist, where they believed in the, uh, that the work and the, and the power and the spirit of God ceased. And so it was just kind of uh, church became more of a literacy comprehension than anything. Um, so I had to unlearn those things and yeah. understand that, that um, as broad and beautiful as the human race is, as is people's interpretation and wonder of God. Uh, and that, and that I have the ability if I'm humble enough to learn with and from anyone else who walks this earth with wisdom and discernment and understanding that critique is not criticism. Um, and I think that, that, uh, that actually kind of leaves us fairly open-handed in the way that we learn and open to the way that God can possibly move. So reflecting on 2020, it's been a crazy year. What are the first mm -hmm. couple of things that come to mind for you personally? Um, I think the first couple of things that come to mind is that uh, humans need to be okay with themselves. We live in community, but I think uh, what I like to call physical distancing, not social distancing. Because um, if we go back to that idea on culture, language is really important. Um, and, and like, even though you and I, we live what, 25 minutes, from one another and we would do church on a weekly basis. It's probably in this moment of COVID that we've probably actually gotten to know each other really well. Um, and so I, so I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing, if we kind of look at the notion of education is that, um, is that uh, people need to be in embodied spaces and places to really learn well. I think it's possible to learn virtually um, but I think we learn best when we're when we're physically proximal to other people uh, thirdly I would say is that the way the church has been called to function where they've been unable to gather 
has actually caused the church to realize that this is probably the best way that it, it should be functioning. That uh, I think there was a toxic belief that people's gifts and talents can only exist in a 60 to 90 minute service. But what by taking away the service, it's now um, somehow miraculously and theologically opened up this reality of um, the manner in which people can use their gifts and talents. And it's so much more expansive than just the, this kind of production that exists in a 60 to 90 minute service. So I think by taking away the service um, it has actually been a real blessing. And I think it's in some way shown some people's creativity uh, in how they uh, do time, but also it's shown a lot of people's lack of creativity, that people are trying to replicate virtually what they know face-to-face, -face, when actually um, this COVID moment, I guess we could call it, as we exist in our COVID corners, uh, is actually asking for us to be a whole lot more creative, knowing that everyone is a creative and there are few that are artists uh, to uh, make our world a more beautiful place uh, than I guess we currently may fear or perceive it to be. So what has been your church's response and your company's response to the recent events of, well, COVID, but the Black Lives Matter movement as well with the recent killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Uh, what are the actions that your company and church have taken? Sure. Um, well, I work for black institutions. So um, I think I love what my boss says. My boss, Jack Pennell. Jack Pennell was actually, um, he was, Oh, I'm having a mind blank. He was oh, he was David Lewis's press secretary when David Lewis became um, uh, a member of the house. Um, and so, and so he has all this experience on the hill. And uh, he says in regards to our practice of uh, building and creating more schools for boys of color that our educational practice is our protest. Nice. Um, and um, I have a good friend of mine, uh, Naya Rahman, who's currently doing her masters at Fuller Seminary. And, um, and in the moments that she talks with me and Kelly, um, you know, she always says, you know, I just got no time because, you know, I need to be online and on Instagram and telling people about stuff. And I said, girl, don't forget that that your study is your protest. Mm. And now she's a woman of color. And, um, you know, if we can talk about the intersectionality of that, of being a woman and a woman of color and all that jazz, and the way that the system is bends away from people like that, um, you know, she, like, you know, she needs to continue. And I encourage her to continue to um, get that degree. And, um, and that can only be a blessing for her and everyone else. And then as far as church goes, um, church, uh, church has been somewhat of a mixed bag. Uh, they've been a little bit slow 
um, we then uh, helped kind of coordinate uh, a peaceful nonviolent protest, which was great. Um, and I honestly think that that the church currently doesn't have the frameworks to successfully, and I'm talking church broadly now, doesn't have the frameworks to successfully engage well with the, with the complex notion of race and faith in regards to Brianna Taylor, George Floyd, historically Sandra Bland, um, Michael Brown, Walter Scott, uh, Oscar Grant. Um, that for them, it seems like a moment rather than a lived practice and posture. For them, it seems like as long as they can return to their metrics of how many people enter the room, how many people are giving um, and so on and so forth, that, that that is their definition of success. And so I think what this moment has done is it's really challenged their metrics. And um, it's really brought um, like-minded people who are willing to lean into the pain and remain there to participate in this longitudinal and lifelong journey of bringing about um, justice by being loving and courageous. So, Yeah. yeah. What keeps coming to mind is I just want things to look more colorful, you know, in the uh, yeah, sense that, absolutely. yeah, <laughs> not absolutely. just rosters, but leadership and all that. And mm-hmm. people have been brought up differently. Me personally, growing up, we always had people coming over to our house after church on Sundays and it'd be people of every color and all that. So I'm in. Yeah, yeah. So like, yeah. It, it's like, you kind of just want people to get it. Like, how do we make this happen? Do you think? Um, I think, I think we need to go back to that notion of creativity. Um, I don't know about you, but um, I return to that notion of uh, how do we know when we're embodying this notion of church, uh, which, you know, the, the um, in the New Testament, they talk about this idea of the ecclesia, which are like the called out ones. And the interesting thing is that they're called out of their homes and their private spaces, and they're called into public spaces to exist and to be seen, not into dark rooms and services for 60 or 90 minutes a week or even a whole day on on a Sunday, not stepping outside to, you know, engage in the public square. I think what it means is that we, is that we begin to embody um, ways in which uh, everyone has a seat at the table. So church actually looks more like having lunch and dinner. Uh, church looks more like going to get coffee and going for a walk. Because I don't know about you, but it's in those intimate conversations that actually um, with people that uh, we know we can trust and we know that if we're not around them, uh, that um, they will speak well of us and they won't speak behind our back. They won't be condescending uh, and they won't be 
saying things to other people that they're not willing to say to ourselves, but we actually embody these things as we have dinner and as we break bread. That to me is what church actually should look like most simply, but then we can get as creative as we want in public spaces and places, but it doesn't have to be hard. Um, I just think we start to bridge across difference and, 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 creatively widen our circle of human concern awesome that's good stuff and just looking at your life and everything what's your dream job do you feel like it can be all encompassed into one position or do you think it's multiple things all at once um i would probably say uh the role that i'm doing i love um, I wouldn't want to be doing it, anything else or the roles I have or doing it for anyone else. Um, I think that the people we work for, we should, because we spend so much time with them, right, should be considered uh, family. And if you're not willing to spend that much time with people, then don't spend that much time with people. So um, as far as a dream job, um, you know, I'm really open to what God has. I, I just um, am thankful uh, that every night I get to go to bed and, um, and I work with and for and I get to co-create around uh, the people and the things that I do, uh, which is around education, which is around um, uh, being conduits of other people's potential and um, really coming alongside them and helping them be um, maximizers of who they are. Awesome. And we've come to a big moment. What books, podcasts, or any learning resources do you recommend at the moment? Totally. Well, um, I have my head kind of buried in a lot of doctoral work, but I'm not going to lift up that um i've just finished reading uh james baldwin's the fire next time uh and um no name street i'm about to start my angelou's uh i know why the cage birds sing um i really lift up as far as a podcast um the inverse the podcast by jared mckenna and drew hart um and i'm currently reading again because i'm running a i'm running a book club on the intersection of like uh, race faith and personal formation and we're currently uh reading jennifer eberhardt's book biased which explores uh implicit racial bias and its uh everyday function um in our everyday lives nice I was writing them all down. Were you so really? Like I wasn't <laughs> paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> um, if if you want, I'll send you that list and um, some specific um, episodes of those podcasts as well. Okay. Yeah, cool. that works too. That's probably way better. <laughs> Great. <laughs> cool. All Good, right. Man. Good. So we're just going to end it with probably two more questions. So. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a two-part question. If there is sure. one thing you could ask your future self, what would it be? And if there's one thing you could tell your high school self, what would it be? 
Um, I think I'm going to answer both of them with a story, if I may. Yeah. So about uh, two years ago, I was doing uh, some work for um, my former school and we were examining kind of these values and virtues that we wanted to uh, instill in our boys, but also see how we could test and research if they were cultivated in the practice of who they were through their educational experiences. So I go to this first grade class. So I walk into a room and there's like 16 to 20, five and six year old boys. Um, and so, and so I go in, I sit on like this undersized green plastic chair. Like, I think you're what you're six, three, you're a little bit bigger than me. So, you know, like, you know, our knees are in our chest <laughs> and, um, and like, like I watch them do, some of their activities and then um, I get them to come and sit on the floor and I introduce myself. I'm like, Hey, I'm Mr. Castle. Um, And I'm here to specifically talk to you about the notion of trust. And I open with, how do you know you can trust someone? And these hands, they fly up. And, and this first boy goes, Hey, sir, I know I can trust a person when, when they give me a gift. I'm like, great. Good job. Your love language gifts now i know that the second kid goes uh sir i know i can trust my mum when she kisses me on the forehead i'm like beautiful this third kid his hands up still and he goes uh, sir i know i can trust my parents when they tuck me in at night i'm like oh you know great and this fourth kid over on the right hand side like far right and he's been like i don't know about you but like these kids who are like you know this embody like, like, I really have the right answer. <laughs> uh, so I turn to him and, and I say, yes, what do you think it is? And he goes, um, sir, I know I can trust someone when I know my name is safe in their mouth. Whoa. Yeah. From like six year old. Wow. So I wish, um, I wish I was told in high school and college about what it meant um, to look for mentors that I knew had my name safe in their mouth rather than trying to like please everyone or, you know, only do things by myself or whatever. So um, I kind of keep that narrative on the forefront of my mind as like a boundary and like a litmus test about uh, is this person that i'm engaging with are they someone who has my name safe in their mouth and if they are great but if they're not then uh you know i'll set a boundary and move from there wow that's a genius six-year-old but yeah 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 (laughs) my bet is that you know he's probably overheard that from his parents who are both like clinical psychologists and you know they've like you know that they just say that um over and over again but i know with me it worked yeah and it continues to work nice and last question for you if there Mm -hmm. was one thing anybody could do to make this world more equal for everybody what is one simple thing they could do to make that happen i think they I think it's two parts. I think they need to learn who they are. 
uh, and then at the same time use whatever kind of gift they have or talents to um, examine the region or the city that they live in and try and go and use that gift or talent for the most underprivileged part of that region or city. You know, try it for like for one day um, and then from there have dinner with one person that they've met through that experience. So like they don't have to succeed from the experience. They just have to try and have a meal with the person that they've met from that experience. Dang, so connection in a sense? Well, yeah, like I think what I've learned a lot is that, you know, people talk a lot about leadership as um, taking people somewhere or influence. And I think if they only talk about that, then they really miss the point. Leadership is mostly, if not all, about good relationships. And if you don't have good relationships and you're not able to sit down and have a meal with a person that you're leading or that they are leading you, then something's wrong. Yeah. So um, if from whatever experience they choose to go and have, if they can then have a meal with that person, I think we're well on our way to making a more just and good society. Awesome. I love that. And I just want to encourage you before we close that I feel like you're really moving forward in the direction that you're called to and just mm -hmm. tackling injustice and exposing it and all that. But most mm -hmm. importantly, you're doing it in the name of Jesus and there's more to come and yeah, you got this. Just keep doing what you're doing. Thanks, man. And um, what I'm about to say, I hope you don't cut out of this <laughs> because I know you have the power too, but um, I really want people who are listening to this to uh, that we take a moment and that um, in you, um, there, uh, you have uh, this gift to be creative in a moment where people aren't and you have the ability to connect with a lot of people that most people uh, fear to tread. Um, and I see in you, bro, uh, this embodiment of courage and love. So continue to walk in it, bro. Thank you, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. That's pretty awesome. And of course, man. Is there uh, anything you want to promote at the moment? Do you have a website or anything in the uh, works? I don't have a website. Um, I would say, um, like I have an Instagram, T underscore castle. Um, so, um, but you know, being an Aussie, it's kind of weird to promote yourself, but I guess I have to learn to do that if I'm American. So, um, the whole tall, yeah, tall poppy thing, tall poppy syndrome. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, like, um, it'd be really good if people would go and check out, I guess the institution that I work for Baltimore collegiate school for boys. Uh, you can find them on Instagram or go to the website. Um, and, uh, there are ways to like donate. Um, and so we're really using education as our way to, level the playing field and uh, protest a broken system. So cool. that's what we could do. Cool. Do they have a Instagram or anything or online account? They do. Baltimore Collegiate would be their Instagram handle. All right. I'll try to tag it um, 
once your episode comes out. But cool, yeah. man. Thanks, bro. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on, and I'll let you get to your walk or whatever you got going on after this. Thanks, man. I really appreciate you, and um, I'll speak to you soon. Yeah. And for everyone else, until next time, as we're maturing, we're going to keep learning, stirring up, and chasing after what our creator created us to do. So have a good one, everyone. Peace. Thanks for sticking around for the Catch Up After College podcast. And you know, while you're there, you might as well subscribe. Because we got some good content coming out every single week. Either Tuesday or Friday, check in, it will be there. And you know what, might as well give a good review as well. Make sure to rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you can find us. And we'll just keep cranking out that great content for you week after week. If you know someone who would be a great guest for the show, the Catch Up After College podcast, or you just want to share some feedback, maybe there's some questions you haven't heard yet that you want to be heard, uh, I would tell you to email us at catchupaftercollege at gmail.com. Just for any inquiries, you can email us there, and we'll try to respond as soon as we can. That is catchupaftercollege at gmail.com. Hope to hear from you soon. Peace.